0: welcome to hsbc global viewpoint the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights trends and opportunities make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes thanks for listening and now on to today's show you're listening to the macro viewpoint our weekly focus on the views of the hsbc global research team This podcast was recorded on Thursday, the 26th of January, 2023. Our full disclosures and disclaimers must be viewed in the link attached to this podcast.
1: Hello and welcome everyone. Will artificial intelligence one day take your job? We're going to explore what AI advancements may mean for all of us in the labour market today.
0: Ahead of big decisions next week by the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England policymakers, we focus on how the aggressive rate rises to treat inflation here in Europe may
1: affect the region's growth prospects. And with the focus in financial markets on the impact of China's reopening, we are looking at the outlook for metals around the world. Hello, I'm Aline Van Dyne in New York.
0: And I'm Piers Butler in London.
1: We begin this week with a look at a technology that has seen rapid developments in recent years, artificial intelligence. Users can now create images and text in an entirely self-generated manner with OpenAI's ChatGPT GPT tool getting much attention and a multi-billion dollar investment from Microsoft.
0: So what do these advancements mean for the economy and the labor markets in particular? Could AI really take your job or mine? Let's ask James Pomeroy, Global economist. Hi,
2: James. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, James, should I be worried? Possibly. I think there's quite likely that artificial intelligence and the rapid developments we've seen uh, over the course of the last few months in particular uh, are making us think about the role that it's going to have uh, in influencing the labour market going forwards. I don't think necessarily it's going to take away an enormous amount of people's jobs entirely. I think the impact of artificial intelligence is going to be much more so um, taking away parts of our jobs. And actually, the encouraging thing is it's probably going to take away the boring parts of our jobs, the bits that are repetitive, the bits that don't require any really complex thought or idea generation, and a lot of the processes that we do um, day to day. So I think AI will not necessarily take many jobs, but the parts of our jobs it takes will be probably much more interesting. So you have this fascinating
0: chart in your report that shows that the interest in AI has rocketed up. And I guess that's because the AI du jour is chat GPT. Explain to us why
2: that's become such a sensation. So for a long period of time, economists and technologists have thought about artificial intelligence, this amazing technology that will transform the world at some point in the future. But then essentially what we got at the back end of last year was the release of this chatbot, ChatGPT, uh, which essentially has brought really showcasing the the power of artificial intelligence very, very clearly in a way that people can use very, very easily. So it's allowed everyone in the world suddenly has access to this amazing AI bot, and it's really unleashed the potential um, of what it's capable of. Now, that tool in itself is powerful and is an interesting development and will help a lot of people um, with their jobs or personal lives. And I think it's a really, really, really good invention. But the Problem is that that's only the starting point. We then have to think, where does it go from here? And I think the huge leap forwards we've seen in the past... Um, few months has basically got people thinking what is next in terms of artificial intelligence, and how could it be rolled out much more broadly into people's jobs. And it's that next step that's really, really exciting when we think about um, some of the use cases, some of the um, impacts on the economy, and of course, the impacts on the labour market. So it's sort of got people thinking rather than necessarily being game changing all by itself, no matter how good um, a, a step it has been. And the challenge, in fact,
0: is that ChatGPT doesn't always give the right answer. And that makes me think about
2: what's the governance around something such as such as that? Yeah, it's a particularly difficult issue here because there's a whole load of challenges you've got with artificial intelligence. You've got to think about um, whether it's biased in terms of how it's coded. You've got to think about the accuracy of it that needs to be checked. Um, And therefore, you've got to think about how do you go about controlling for those those things? These are clearly big, big hurdles. But if you take the examples um, of how it can be used at the moment, particularly regarding um, digging into topics or, or problem solving or coming up with ideas, it's very easy to verify a lot the output you're getting. But we need the artificial intelligence to improve or to develop in a way going forwards that allows it to be much more embedded within systems and thus not having to continually check um, or verify the output that it's giving us. So um, at this stage, it is a challenge, as a hurdle, but going forwards, better artificial intelligence will probably alleviate some of those concerns, even if we can't get rid of them completely. Um, but as I say, this is a stepping stone um, on a journey to, to a world where artificial intelligence is more widely used.
0: So fascinatingly, you went to ChatGPT, and you had a conversation about the future of AI. You asked uh, ChatGPT a number of questions, uh, and the full conversation is in the report. One of the questions that uh, I thought was quite brave of you to ask was, what was going to be the, the economist's role, and how would it be affected by AI? What
2: was the answer to that? Well, it gives quite a complex answer looking at the sort of skills that uh, economists have and some of the roles that can be uh, so parts of the role that can be automated away by artificial intelligence. So it can analyse data, interpret data, possibly even uh, more efficiently than than we can. Of course, we some economists would argue that that is impossible. Um, But there is also thinking in our job, in particular, as economists. There's a genuine role for ChatGPT in its current form, which is essentially the start of a lot of research reports. And you're trying to dig out and find historical precedents or other articles that people have written or um, other analysis that people have done. It's just a really, really powerful tool to get a lot of base research done um, in terms of generating ideas, in terms of generating reports, and in terms of building data that you can analyse. So um, I think at the moment, um, economics actually is, is a job where it fits this sort of brief really, really well well, that artificial intelligence isn't going to take our jobs necessarily, but it's probably going to act as an enormous productivity benefit if we can use the technology properly.
0: Well, I'll look forward to that. James, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We've got a big week coming up for central banks. Here in Europe, the ECB has hiked rates by 250 basis points since last July, making it the most aggressive timing cycle in its history.
1: And with more rises still expected, including at next Thursday's meeting, what could be the impact on the region's growth outlook? Fabio Balboni is our senior European economist, and he joins us now. So Fabio, a lot of challenges, of course, still in Europe in terms of inflation, growth, the outlook. How is the ECB going to handle this at next week's meeting?
3: Well, we think the ACB will stay the course, so we expect another 50 basis point rate rise and we do not expect any signaling of a possible slowdown in the future. So we expect a continuation of the hawkish tone that we had uh, in December. And the main reason is that even though we had some positive news in terms of inflation, it does seem that finally inflation is past the peak in the eurozone. Headline figures have started to come down. Actually, the main reason is policy intervention and a significant drop in energy prices. Gas prices have uh halved since last December. But when you look at underlying inflationary pressure, they're still building up, core inflation is still going up in the Eurozone, and that means that there is still a risk of a possible wage inflation spiral emerging, and the ECB is very well aware of that.
1: And what about the growth outlook? Because uh, if you look at the cycle a bit more broadly and looking into next year, you think that there is a bit too much optimism baked into the market right now in terms of the growth-inflation trade-off?
3: Absolutely. Um, in our view, uh, the, the prevailing view in the market and among some uh, uh, ECB policymakers is that uh, inflation, uh, inflationary pressure will be tamed. Inflation will revert back to the ECB target within a relatively short uh, timeframe. And at the same time, without having to pay uh, too much of a price in terms of growth. If you look, for instance, at the ECB growth forecast, um they already have growth above potential next year at close to 2%. Now, we challenge that view. And in particularly, uh, we see that this has already been the most aggressive uh, tightening cycle in the history of the eurozone. 250 basis point of rate rises since last July. By March, we think we are going to be at 350 basis point. We see another 50 basis point hike in March following the one in February. And it's very unlikely that these will not have uh, negative consequences from a growth perspective. There are many channels, um, corporate investment, housing investment, um, higher mortgage payment, or even the public sector channel with a significant reduction of the fiscal space available for governments to support growth. So when you put everything together, in our view, it's more likely that growth will remain subdued, even if a recession can be avoided. And and the other side of the equation, even on the inflation outlook, as I mentioned, we see still ongoing underlying inflationary pressure. We think that wage growth is likely to stay high for at least the next couple of years. And, And therefore, we think that even though rate rises would not be enough to bring back inflation uh, back to 2% within such a short time frame as the market incur- is currently expecting. So within that market view, we certainly see a risk that even either the ECB will have to be more aggressive to bring inflation back to 2% faster with more negative consequences from a growth perspective, or that the ECB will have to live for a higher inflation for longer.
1: Very interesting Fabio. Um can you just talk a little bit more about the wage pressures? Uh, any any quick thoughts on that and and how important that is?
3: Absolutely. Wages are uh, the one to watch. Uh what we see in the eurozone is uh, wages are going up. Um, of course, the labor market is very tight. Wages in the eurozone tend to be backward looking uh, because of the importance of collective deals, because of the importance of inflation indexation. So we haven't seen wage growth in line with inflation for last year. But what we're tending to see is that pay rises are spread over several years. Um, and they are uh, certainly increasing, even though there are no signs just yet of a wage inflation spiral. So putting everything together, our view is that certainly the ECB needs to send a strong signal that they will tackle inflation to prevent such a wage inflation spiral to uh, emerge. Uh, but the risks uh, are still there. And certainly for Eurozone firms, uh, it is very likely that some of those wage pressure are going to remain there for the next couple of years that could contribute to some of those underlying price pressures.
1: Fabio, thanks so much for the update.
3: Thank you very much. Let's
0: just review expectations for the Fed and the Bank of England before we turn to the world of metals. Aileen, what's our view in the US?
1: Yes, thanks, Piers. So our US economist Ryan Wang is expecting a 25 basis point rise on Wednesday, which would lift the federal fund's target range to 4.5 to 4.75%. So after that, he expects another 25 basis point rise in March and then a halt to rate rises. Interestingly, he doesn't think there will be cuts until the second quarter of 2024.
0: And back across the pond here in the UK, our senior UK economist Liz Martin thinks the Bank of England will hike rates by 25 basis points to 3.75% at Thursday's meeting. While we see significant risks of a larger 50 basis points hike, Liz thinks a mix of factors will persuade policymakers to opt for a slower pace of 25 basis points. The combination of circumstances include lower near-term inflation, a rapid slowdown in the housing market, and the Bank of England's own medium-term inflation view. We finish this week with a look at metals prices, which have been under pressure since June due to poor economic data out of China and recession fears in the US and Europe.
1: There has been some good news recently though, Piers, with prices rallying on the back of China's reopening. John Brandt, senior metals and mining analyst, joins us now to assess whether this momentum can continue. John, welcome. So let's start with the big question, how important is China reopening for metals?
4: Well, thanks, Aline. it's it's significantly important, right? If, if you look at China's demand for metals, uh, it accounts anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of total demand. Uh, and, and that's a big deal. Uh, we were previously expecting uh, demand to, to decrease across a variety of metals this year, but with uh, the reopening, uh, certainly it seems uh, like it's going to accelerate. Now what's interesting is we haven't necessarily seen real demand increasing as of yet. Uh, what we've seen and what we think is propelling a lot of these metal prices higher is an inventory uh, rebuilt uh, inventories were quite low last year so they remain low but we're starting to see that increase and then we're also seeing net speculative positions uh, across a variety of metals uh, they have also increased which has propelled uh, metal prices higher now we think uh, sort of post chinese new year and, and into the spring and, and summer months that we'll start to see real demand uh, across metals uh, really increasing uh and further increasing in the fall in and, and, and next winter um due to China but it's not it's not just about China we were also uh, expecting better demand across a lot of developed markets um it, just given the the emphasis that that we're seeing on energy transition renewable energies and, and EVs as well
1: so, John, which metals are particularly supported by these trends of China reopening and also the move to electric vehicles and energy transition?
4: Well, some of the, the big metals that, that will benefit would be uh, copper, lithium, potentially nickel. Um, if you look at sort of the, the need for energy independence, given what's happening with, with Russia and, and, and Europe and, and to the rest of the world, we think that that will increase the, the investment for renewable energy uh, that is obviously beneficial for, for things like copper. You, you need a lot more copper um, in renewable power plants than, than you do in sort of your, your more traditional power plants. Uh, and then obviously nickel and, and lithium uh, should benefit as EVs uh, increase, uh, the EV penetration rates increase. Um, you know, and a uh, big part of you know how much they benefit will depend on, on the battery technology. But certainly, lithium and, and and nickel will will benefit from sort of the the EV theme. Well, copper should also benefit from the EV theme. It's it's really about renewable energy uh, for them.
1: And John, in terms of supply issues, just remind us what the main drivers are. Like, what is constraining supply?
4: A variety of things, right? You, you've had the miners who have been uh, unable or unwilling to to invest, uh, like they have in the past. Really, since 2015, you you haven't seen uh, significant uh, investment in in the sector, at least in uh, expansion projects. Um, the the one exception to that is is copper, but copper has their own issues. You you have a, a difficult political uh, environment in places like Peru and Chile, which uh, account for 35 to 40 percent of the market uh you you have great issues you have water issues you you have social issues um so it's just becoming increasingly hard uh to to get metal out of the ground and and get it where it it needs to go um and we think that that problem persists so even though demand uh, across metals is is coming down or, or, or the growth rates are coming down, you definitely don't have the the same type of uh, supply uh, coming out of the ground that, that you've had in, in years past either. Uh, and so that's really what's what's going to create the balanced market or, or, or slight deficits. is, is just a, a lack of supply that's coming.
1: John, thank you so much.
4: Thank you.
0: So that's all from us this week. Thanks to our guests, James Pomeroy, Fabio Balboni, and John Bren.
1: From all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.